Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Our theme this summer has been be the church. Let's not just do church. Let's actually be the church. Sounds good. But how do we know? Well, one way to answer that question would be to think back to the early Christian movement, the very first church, and think about the people on the outside of it. When the people outside of the movement looked in and watched church, what is it that they saw? And then to bring that question into now, in 21st century America, when people outside of the Christian movement watch church, what do they see? They see the values and priorities of God reflected there because people will draw conclusions about Christ based on the impression that they have of Christ's followers. So you see, for us to be the church is not just a determination made by a board of directors or by the staff, we're gonna be the church. It requires the buy-in and the investment of every individual who considers themselves to be part of that church. And so with the book of Acts as our guide, I wanna look at seven things that I see occurring from the end of Acts chapter four to the beginning of Acts chapter six. And these are things that marked the early church, that the people who lived in Jerusalem, who were not followers of Jesus, nonetheless, when they looked in from the outside and watched church, these are the things that they saw. And then I wanna challenge you to personally reflect on each of these seven things and, and ask yourself, How much does that value describe me? So here we go. Seven things from the book of Acts, beginning at chapter four, verse 32. First it says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Now the first time I read the book of Acts, it was in college. I'd never read it before. I didn't know it was in there. And of course, when you read it, it's the story of Peter and James and Paul, but it's also the story of Numbers. On Pentecost, 3,000 people were added to their number. A short time later, 5,000 more joined their ranks. And so what happens is in Acts is as much about the apostles, because it is the Acts of the Apostles, but it's also about these nameless, faceless people who nonetheless formed the backbone of the early church. Now, these face masks that we all wear, they block the lower part of your face. And so it makes it hard in a crowd to tell who you're really dealing with. A couple of weekends ago at our Sunday morning 9 a.m. gathering, I came up to people who I knew well and I said, hello. And they looked at me and, and said, who are you? There were other people who I said hello to and they said hello back. And later I asked them, were you at the prayer gathering? And they said, yeah, you said hi to me two times. So these things conceal our identity and yet that's kind of a metaphor for the identity of a Christian when they're part of a church. Do you know Colossians chapter three? It says, since you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I don't know about you, but this COVID season has been the reduction of me. I have felt, less of myself, the outward public self that I can display. And yet in some ways that's been really, really freeing as well. When we're part of the church and when we're being the church, we're setting aside individual significance and vying for importance and power and position. There should be no big names in Christianity. 
And so how about you? Can you honestly say that you have surrendered vying for personal identity and significance and you're content being one of those nameless, faceless individuals that is nonetheless the strength of the body of Christ? The second thing that outsiders saw was a spirit of generosity. Continuing from chapter four, no one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. And from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now at the end of the section we're going to look at, the beginning of chapter 6, there were widows that they were feeding in their midst. And there was a dispute about making sure that everybody had enough to eat. So they said, let's, let's work out a system to make sure that none of these needs go unmet. And in the middle of that, the apostles are teaching and preaching, but I think it's important to note that it begins with their charity and their generosity and it ends with their charity and their generosity because so often today when people look at the church from the outside, all they see us doing is talking and that shouldn't be. Outsiders should see a spirit of generosity because there is a spirit of generosity in each one of us. You know, that's why generosity is one of the stated values at this church. And I just want to read to you a couple of figures. Do you know that since the beginning of this year, you, you have contributed $342,000 to local and global missions, most of it going to COVID relief and designated for that. Uh, We've given away close to $200,000 in church benevolence to people inside our church who have needs and uh, from what's called our emergency relief fund. And you have donated close to a ton of food. Let that number sink in for a moment. I mean, literally a ton of food, which would crush a human being, but we distributed it through our local partners and through our channels to meet the needs of our community. Thank you for that. On top of that, we have 230 people who have signed up to be volunteers. And those volunteers have done things like food distribution. They've made masks. They've assembled snack bags for ICU workers. And and if you want to help, it's not too late. You can just go to our website and scroll down a ways and there's buttons for get help and give help. Now you need to be healthy and you need to be approved. but, But once you're on our roster, we will put all kinds of opportunities for you to get your hands dirty and show a spirit of generosity because that's what it means to be the church. And so how about you? Can you say I am not attached to or defined by what is mine, but I'm grateful to share it with other people? The third thing that outsiders saw when they looked at the early church was a people walking in holy fear. Now we have this somewhat strange story about a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, and it begins like this. Joseph, who was a Levite from Cyprus, the apostles called him Barnabas. He sold a field that he owned. He brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? 
What made you think of doing such a thing? You have lied not just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then some young men came forward and wrapped his body and carried him out and buried him. And then it says, his wife came in and Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? And she said, yes, this is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in and and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband and great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, we need to be careful. I don't believe that the point of this story is that God will strike you dead if you tell a lie. The point of this story is to illustrate for them at that time and for us now that God holds the power over life and death. And notice that phrase that shows up two times in that incident, great fear. We don't talk about the fear of God much anymore in churches these days. We, we don't want to come at it from a negative angle. But the fear of God, understand, is not a paralyzing fear where we're dreadful and we can't move. It's a motivating fear. It's a reverential fear. My generation, Generation X, uh, took irreverence to new heights, knocking down and poking fun at people in authority, and sometimes that needs to happen. But in the church, God should enjoy reverential fear. He should occupy the center of our community and in our individual hearts, he should occupy a space that is inviolable. It belongs only to him. How would you affirm this statement? God inhabits a unique and sacred space in my heart and I refuse to make my relationship with him something ordinary. The early church walked in holy fear. Fourth, when outsiders watched church, They saw people who had high ethical standards and practiced scrupulous honesty. What do you suppose was the character of Christian interactions after word of Ananias and Sapphira spread? Interactions not only with each other, but with outsiders as well. Transactions that called for honesty because honesty is the bedrock of human relationships. And I'm not making light of the striking down of Ananias and Sapphira. I'm just saying that negative motivation will only last for so long. And so do you embrace honesty in your interactions with other people? Not do you value honesty. Everybody says they value honesty. But do you actually embrace and practice honesty in your relationship with yourself, who you believe you are, in your relationship with God, In the most intimate moments with him, are you brutally, brutally honest? And do you bring it into your relationships with other people? Do you strive to be thoroughly honest? Fifth, the outsiders in Jerusalem saw a people who gathered together. Listen to Acts 5, 12, and 13. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. And so they were a people who gathered together. And here we are, gathered together. Even if you're in your living room, you're joining us virtually, and that's a great thing. 
If you're able to turn out on a Sunday morning and we're, we're out on the Piazza and campus and the weather is beautiful and that's a great thing, we are gathered together, but, but why? Have you ever stopped to think about that? What is it that we can accomplish by gathering together in our spirituality that we can't just practice privately? And the answer is in gathering together, we keep Christ real in our midst. And let me explain that. It's not to say that Christ is imaginary. It's not to say that I can't have faith on my own or exercise faith on my own. But we live our lives in physical bodies. Our bodies move. Our brains think. Our mouths speak. And all week long, our existence is physical. It's carnal. And by getting together with other people and engaging in spiritual disciplines, what we're doing is we're bringing our physicality into our spirituality. It's kind of like the value of working out with somebody else. Even when you work out with somebody else, the work that you do or don't do to exercise yourself, it's completely on you. But if you don't work out with a partner, there's a greater chance that you're not going to do that exercise. And it's just better together. And the same thing goes with gathering together. This discipline of coming together, even if you can only do it from your living room right now, and that's okay, but it's the spiritual discipline known as fellowship. And again, when we exercise these spiritual disciplines, we're bringing our bodies, our physical bodies, and the words that we say and the thoughts that we think, and we're uniting with our spirituality. That's why I want to strongly encourage you to jump in on Wednesday nights for sacred rhythms when we talk all about using spiritual disciplines. And so for you, would you affirm the statement that you make it a regular habit to encounter God through spiritual disciplines, including through the important discipline of fellowship with other believers? The sixth thing that outsiders saw when they would watch church was an attractional community. The Bible says that sick people were brought into the streets in the hope that Peter's very shadow would fall on them and they would be healed. Now, that's a misunderstanding of how healing was happening. Some superstition involved in there. But outsiders saw something in this new community of Christ followers that they really wanted. The Bible goes on to say that the word spread so that people were bringing people who were sick or demon-possessed from outside Jerusalem in to be near the apostles. And we don't know if those people became believers or not. But we know that this community had something that they wanted. For you and I to be the church means that we live our lives together and individually in a way that's appealing to outsiders. That outsiders would look and say, I want what they have. What is that? Is it supernatural healing? It might be. But it also might be joy. It also might be the contentment with which we walk through life, especially during these times. It might be an inner peace that people can just sense in you. Man, that guy, he just never gets ruffled. I have never seen him angry about anything. And God can do that in you. It might be the way that you parent your kids or relate to your spouse. Whatever it is, we want to say when others see my life, when they watch me, a part of the church, they see something worth emulating. And finally, what did people see when they watched church? They saw a people who lovingly proclaimed the truth. See, what happens now is because the disciples are attracting attention, 
all these healings and, and people want to know what's going on and the Jewish ruling authorities get jealous. So they grab the apostles and they throw them in jail. And overnight, the Bible says an angel comes and releases them from jail and says, you go back to the temple and preach about the new life that is possible for these people. Morning comes and the Sanhedrin sends some representatives over to the jail to open up the doors and the apostles aren't there. And verse 24 of chapter 25 says they were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. You have to remember, they're only a few months down the road from the resurrection of Jesus. Now you've got all of these Jesus followers running around saying, he rose from the dead, he rose from the dead. And now this morning, they've got an empty jail cell to account for. What will this mean? Suddenly one of their groups says, look over there. There they are. They're teaching in the temple courts. And the Jewish rulers go over to them and they know that they can't arrest them by force because they're afraid that the crowds will stone them. So they they try a gentle approach. Hey, hey guys, come on over here and, and talk to us. And they haul them before the Sanhedrin. And in verse 28, they, they say, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And at that point, the Bible says, Peter and the other apostles demanded their rights, stormed off and kept go. Oh, wait. Does your Bible say that? My Bible doesn't say that. It says, Peter says, we must obey God rather than human beings. And then he goes on to give the reason why they are preaching what they're preaching. Because they themselves were witnesses of his resurrection and because God wants to and intends to bring Israel to repentance and grant the forgiveness of their sins. I think this is important to catch. Peter's not being belligerent here at all. He's giving the reason for the hope that they have and says, we're gonna keep on proclaiming the truth. You see, the restrictions that the Jews were putting on him were based on the content of the message, not the setting or the form. I have every reason to believe that if the Jews had said, just, you can talk about this, but don't do it in the temple, don't do it in Solomon's colonnade, Peter would have said, no problem, because the truth of our message does not depend on context or setting. Right now, there's some restrictions on churches meeting indoors. And some people don't like those restrictions. But can I tell you why I have great hope? Because we are not even close to the level of persecution that is faced in closed countries. And even if it came to that, that they chained every church shut and took down our online streams, you know what would happen then? The church would go underground. And the persecuted church has been a mighty force in the history of Christianity. Already hundreds of people are receiving our messages and the messages of thousands of churches across the United States through an online stream. And so what happens next is a Pharisee named Gamaliel says, uh, uh, Christ followers, step outside for a minute. And then he addresses the assembly and he says this, guys, he says, remember a while back when uh, Thutis appeared and he had a band of followers and then he was put to death and nothing ever came of it. And, and remember Jewish, or Judas, he led a revolt and he had a band of followers. We were a little worried about that, but he was put to death and nothing came of it. So my suggestion is, let's just leave this be because their leader was put to death. And I can tell you, if this is of human origin, it's not gonna go anywhere. But if this is truly from God, we're not gonna be able to stop it. We're gonna find ourselves fighting against God. 
And so they can't close the church. That's why I'm not worried. God's behind it. God's behind the message of the gospel. And so as we proclaim the message, we don't need to proclaim it in an anxious way or a desperate way or a nervous way or a belligerent or militant way. If you believe that God is behind the message of the gospel, then you can proceed with calm confidence. Do you believe that? That you're confident that the power of God is in the gospel. And so in representing him to outsiders, you don't need to behave belligerently or harshly or desperately. Because when we get desperate, we get afraid. When we get afraid, we get angry. And the early Christians were not angry. God gave them not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love and confidence and self-discipline. And the church today should be marked by the same things. So what if when the world watched church, these were the things that they saw? Number one, a body of believers. No big names, a team where everybody plays and there's no superstars. Secondly, a spirit of generosity. Thirdly, a people who walk in holy fear, deep reverence for God that motivates everything they do. Leading to number four, a people marked by impeccable honesty and high ethical standards. Fifth, what if people saw a people who gathered together to encounter God in one another? What if they saw an attractional community where those on the outside said, whatever they have, I want some of that. And what if people saw a gentle people who proclaimed truth, not desperately, but confidently. What if that phrase, watch church, was more like this, the way that you and I speak into our phones? Watch, exclamation point, church, exclamation point, where outsiders were truly saying, watch, church. Those people are amazing, and they are truly working to change the world. Father, this is the kind of church we want to be. We want to be the church. We want your power to be in our midst. And we want outsiders to just be blown away by the example that we set because we're confident that if it's from you, it cannot be stopped. Make us this kind of church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.